Welcome back to the City System Podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Tu Lee to talk about the PRC auto industry. Tu is the founder and managing director of Sino Auto Insights. Tu recently relocated to Detroit after many years in Beijing. Tu and his team at Sino Auto Insights do advisory and market research work for companies and investors who want to understand the PRC auto industry and especially the rise of made-in-China EVs. He also writes an excellent weekly newsletter and does a podcast and occasional or weekly, I think, uh, Twitter spaces. I will put links to those in the show notes. Two, welcome and thanks for joining the podcast. Great to see you again. Bill, first, uh, thanks for having me. Last time we saw each other, I think we were at Central Park having a coffee at Jamaica right. Blue. That's that was right. quite a few years ago. Thanks for two, having me. Two and I are old friends from Beijing. It's good to see you <laughs> and uh, nice to have you uh, back in the U.S. And Detroit, uh, Detroit is home, right? But it's also a great place to be if you're working on the auto industry. Yeah, it's ground zero for what's happening in the EV and mobility space. So it's a great time to be back. So I've been really wanting to get you on the podcast for a while, and I got finally motivated to do so after reading what you were talking about from the Shanghai Auto Show, which you were, you just came back from China, I think like a week ago, right? You're there for yep. two or three weeks. Uh, and nice to be able to travel again, right? <laughs> oh man, it was, it was surreal because the last time I traveled internationally from China, we were just, we had bags packed and everything. So a little bit different. Yeah, no, much, much better. And I think uh, the shot at auto show clearly rocked a lot of people's worlds. So two is going to help us understand what's going on. And that's why. So I want to start, though, first with if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in China working in the audio industry and what your firm does. Okay, sure. Uh, as you'd mentioned, I grew up in Detroit, actually in Pontiac, Michigan, uh, and my entire family, all eight of us have worked in the automotive space along with our significant others. And my first job actually out of undergrad at Michigan State University was working at GM where the recently canceled Bolt is manufactured. After oh, wow. grad school, I moved to Silicon Valley, worked there for about six, seven years, uh, and I met a girl and chased her over to Beijing, <laughs> actually. So I quit my Silicon Valley job, and what I thought was going to be a three or four year commitment ended up being 13 years. Uh, and I had moved to Shanghai, took a job with Ford uh, in Lu Jiazui, actually, for about a year, and then moved back to Beijing due to some family stuff going on. And then I started freelance consulting and worked at a couple of Chinese e-commerce startups in Beijing, and then I got pulled over to do some freelance consulting because one of my uh, friends ha had found out that I had some automotive background in Mercedes, BMW, and Audi, they're all located, or VW Group are located in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And so I started Sino Auto Insights because you know, right around 2014, 2015, where you know, at Parkview Green, Tesla had opened the first retail store for China. And so I really started seeing a shift in what was going on in the space and a lot of articles and a lot of bad takes. So I started the newsletter, started the consultancy uh, because of my experience in Detroit, Silicon Valley, and China with startups. And it was, it's been quite an adventure. And we, what we do is we, we're a management consult, consultancy that helps mobility companies enter markets, develop products, raise capital, and build their brand and work with them to find customers. And so, we were focused primarily in the China market, but now kind of expanded because China EV Inc. has expanded. And with the Inflation Reduction Act, we've recently opened a Detroit office and are starting to help companies here expand into the EV space and the mobility space. So, so yes, that's what we do. Oh, that's fascinating. And I, just to your, like, 
what you mentioned about the uh, Tesla dealership at uh, the show at the Feng Shaodi, the Parkview Green. Uh, I actually, we both, we lived near there. Our, my kids went to school next to it. I think yours went to Feng Shaodi. That's right. Right. Exactly. So I live so, right next door. There so. you go. And so I went there right after it opened with a friend, with a, a friend of mine from Hunan who had, he had a, a couple of 730s and a BMW, very, had light cars, had, could buy what he wanted. And it was really fascinating because he wanted to buy a Model S, right, early on. And he got in there and he's like, God, it's like, it's just so bare bones. It doesn't know. <laughs> so he didn't buy it because just this is not, this is just, I wanted like a German luxury car. And it was over $120,000. Oh, yeah. They were, they were quite expensive. I mean, this is really early. To, and, uh, obviously, Tesla's done well since then. But it was just really interesting how when they entered the market, they were not at all focused on. They were they had a brand image, but actually inside the cars, the way they were appointed was not near what sort of Chinese luxury buyers were used to. Right. And I would venture to guess your friend was probably a little bit older. and so he was he's probably, like 40 at the time. Yeah, okay. So he's yeah. pretty young because... The digital natives, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but the digital natives are the ones that are really looking at right. the safety and the connected vehicle. And the screens that make it look like you're like at a currency trading state. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It to me. yeah. Right, I want to I jump to something that you wrote in your latest newsletter, uh, which is excellent. Everyone subscribe to it, and I will link to it, as I said <laughs> earlier. But the one about the Shanghai Auto Show. So you wrote... In 20, 30, 50 years from now, we'll likely point to Auto Shanghai 2023 as that watershed moment. It's the moment most media outlets acknowledge that the foreign legacies that dominated the China auto market for the last 35 years or so have been overtaken and unable to compete with the EV products that have launched in China, launched by China EV Inc. within just the last few years. The legacies haven't given up by any means, but the writing is on the wall. BYD overtook Volkswagen as China's best-selling brand in first quarter 2023, the first time it's ever happened. BYD has no plans of giving up that title for the foreseeable future and are likely only going to pull away even further. China will never be like it was again where brand heritage and being foreign gave you an advantage. So if you're a foreign auto manufacturer, are you like ready to... How sense I got from talking to some people, reading the media was the foreign, some of the foreign execs who went to the auto show were shocked. And so what do they do? And more importantly, how did they fall behind so quick? They have had massive operations in China for decades. Didn't they have a flow of information that helped them understand how the market was changing? So there's a few different things going on here, Bill. I think that the fact that most executives outside of the top management haven't been able to travel to China in three and a half years, really limited their ability to see and feel the differences and the changes. I was in China for most of that three and a half years, and I saw the proliferation of green plates over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And just and, to be green, green plates are if you have an EV. And you and I lived in Beijing during the worst pollution days. And Mm -hmm. so it was a necessary evil and what we'll likely see in India in the future, but that's another subject. And so for them to first be able to land in Shanghai as an international travel, business travel, see all the green plates from the fleet vehicles and the taxis, and then all the way to the passenger vehicles when you get into Jing'an Temple area and stuff like that. I think that really shocked them. And then to go to the media days on Tuesday and Wednesday, the first days you could actually 
see, touch, and feel the vehicles. They close, they make that sound like German cars, and the fit and finish is much, much better than it was five, six, seven, eight years ago. And so you could always tell the European or German executives because the uniform they wear, that suit with no tie, white shirt. And, and tears streaking down their face. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, an, it was an awestruck moment, but also what do we do? Like, how did they get so far ahead and how do we catch up? Because most executives, most automotive, traditional automotive executives have no idea about software and hardware, software right. integration and so in user experience because most automotive companies um, they their products are product focused whereas tech companies are user focused and in in the high tech world everything's an operating expense in the traditional automotive sector everything's a capital expense and so how you think about financing your, your new products is completely different and you know, traditional automotive is just very, very slow product life cycles of five six seven years whereas every tech product you get is new every 10 to 14 months. Mm -hmm. And there it's, it wasn't just that the products were higher quality. It was also the number of them and the number of competitors. And we've seen a decline, a sharp decline over the last several years in GM sales in Volkswagen group sales and Ford sales. So they've seen this coming, but if we look at how Volkswagen and GM specifically and Toyota to a lesser extent have grown and become these global number one, number two, number three automotive players. It's because of the China market and they were making money hand over fist along with their JV partners. So they had no incentive to disrupt themselves. They were fat and happy. It's yeah. Awesome. And I want to give, let me also add, I want to give Tesla a decent amount of credit because you and I know about this catfish effect because in 2016, so Neo, Xpeng, and Li Auto, those companies were established in about 2014, 2015, mm -hmm. and they've been they were struggling for quite some time. Neo was close to bankruptcy. Yeah, they got rescued um, by that uh, provincial government or the that's right, Hefei government. government. Right. Yep. And so, if you look at where the hockey stick starts, it's right around 2019, and guess what factory opened up Tesla. in 2019 Get the exactly factory, right? it's exactly so the first vehicle for the model 3 the made in china model 3 rolled off in december of 2019 so tesla should get a decent amount of credit for bringing a lot of attention to the chinese ev sector but also bringing the level of competition right. up and that's where we're at currently because actually if you look at the us and european markets i would say tesla is aggressively playing offense but in the Chinese market, they're playing a little bit more defense with the price cuts. Well, that's so a couple of things there. One is, I guess the traditional car manufacturers were also a bit, been a bit to be euphemistic behind the curve when it comes to Tesla outside of China. I just wonder though, I would imagine that the staff and the executives in China for these foreign firms would have been reporting about what was going on. Is it just a case of the foreign headquarters not wanting to listen to the local staff? or sort of not believing what they were being told? Or they just couldn't do it culturally? They just couldn't, even if they understood intellectually, they just couldn't believe that this could be possible? Yes, 
<laughs> I think all of the above. I think the speed at which everything changed, and we're talking three and a half right. years effectively. That's one software update in, a, in an American car. No, yeah. A little, little facetious, and, but. And so China is the largest passenger vehicle market in the world. It has been since 2009. The United States is a close, there's not a very close second, but they're second place. But again, if you're just printing money because of the brand logo on the front of your vehicle, you're not super incentivized right. to, to really, uh, to disrupt yourself. And so classic. This came sneaking up. So I'd like to think that since I've been writing this newsletter for the last five or six years, I'd like to think I saw it coming. Yeah. And I was warning. And you, and you did. And you, you did. And it was interesting because it, people really paying attention said this stuff is happening, but it's just now become this broader. Oh my God, the Chinese EVs are like amazing, and they're gonna they're dominating China, and they're coming overseas. Yeah. And. If I'm being honest and frank, it was a lot of hubris. Like, how mm-hmm. could a Chinese EV company... Arrogance. Just arrogance. Yes. And no, and frankly, just being patronizing. Like, like you said, how how could a Chinese company... This We saw this, right? But didn't we see this with Japanese and Korean cars too in the U.S.? Yeah, exactly. And you know that when we were living there in 2010, 2011, you got into a BYD car, you didn't feel safe. It wasn't very nice. And you're going to talk about this later. You know, there are Western reviewer, car reviewers, Sandy Sandy Monroe and Doug DeMuro, right. named two of them that really think that's a, that BYD is building quality products. Yeah. Can they be improved? Of course they can. But they're globally competitive right now. We, we can talk about that a little bit later. But BYD, the other thing that I think is... Really not given a lot of attention. Wang Chuanfu, Li Shufu, these CEOs. So Li Shufu, the, the Geely founder, and, and Wang Chuanfu is the BYD. They're as ambitious as Elon. They're as ambitious as And as talented. Yes, without question. Without question. Now, they're not on Twitter or they're not doing these huge marketing uh, presentations for new product launches. But guess what? They're out there getting it done. Yeah, and, they're world class executives. Yes, yeah, and I think. They're starting to shine a spotlight on some of what they're doing, but it, and now it's now it might be too late. Interesting. You mentioned Tesla. A couple questions around Tesla. How are they doing now? You said they're on the defensive, and then also what? And I think it's related to Tesla and being on the defensive. What is going on with all these price cuts and this sort of this price war among the EV manufacturers in China? So. Let me start with the price cuts. Now, Tesla has never really acted like a traditional automotive company. And I think if we're looking at the media and, and the folks and the analysts that have covered the traditional automotive sector, that's why it's so surprising. But mm-hmm. to me, it's reacting to the market in, a, in an immediate sense, okay? Whereas traditional automotive, they would wait a year before they did any major changes, right? And price cuts, they know that in traditional traditional automotive space, if you do a price cut, you're probably never going to get that money back from the customer if you raise the price. And so they're very careful with that. With regards to how Tesla is doing, so Elon has reiterated that Tesla's goal is 20 million vehicles by 2030. To give you a good idea of how ambitious that is, Toyota was the number one automaker last year globally at around 10 million units. And so for Tesla to get to 20 million by 2030, we'll need to see many more gigafactories opened up 
all around the world. And we know that the next Gigafactory is going to be in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And so that portends a lower price vehicle because the Latin American market and the South American market are not going to be able to afford in millions and millions of units a $40,000 or $50,000 Tesla vehicle. And so Shanghai is always going to be the most important hub for Tesla. It's going to be a domestic consumption hub, but also an export Export hub. hub. Okay. Export into Southeast Asia. They're looking at building in Southeast Asia too. But again, remember, if they're getting to 20 million, they need factories all over the place right. and they need multiple factories all over the place. And But if we get, again, if we look at 20 million units, and then this has less to do with Tesla in China, but more to do with Tesla globally, they'll probably need two or three or four products that are what we call in the automotive space high runners that sell in the millions and millions of vehicles per year. And the only way they get to that is if they build multiple cars at around twenty dollars to $25,000 because that's when India will be able to get more vehicles. That's when Southeast Asia buys more vehicles because at the thirty thirty-five thousand, Southeast Asia can't really afford them in the mass quantities they need to get to that twenty million units. And so it'll be interesting to see because Tesla, in lieu of exporting to Europe because of Berlin Giga, now they've announced their recent their most recent announcements. They're going to be shipping made in China Model Threes and Model Ys to Canada. And so what we'll likely see is unless they're able to get the Model 3 and Model Y refreshes done in this year, we'll probably see some more price cuts. But until they get to the Model 2, Model 1 and a half, where they're really going to increase the volume, a sales volume, the excess capacity of Austin, of Berlin, of Shanghai is going to be a weight around their neck, I think. And interesting. And won't for the sort of emerging markets, developing market strategy like Latin America, aren't they going to run into BYD and some of these other Chinese firms? They're running into BYD in China because well, they pr- right. priced the Model 3 so low because you could call them a premium automaker, although to your friend's point, there's not much to the vehicle. Not in the Model 3. I wouldn't. That's not a premium vehicle. But they had pre- priced it at a premium right. level initially. Right. But now that it's three and a half years old, they have to price it much more aggressively. And yes, they are going to run into a buzzsaw with BYD because one of the highlights of the Shanghai Auto Show was the BYD Seagull. Right. That start, it's a little hatchback, and so it's a smaller car, but it's starting at $12,000. It looked really cute. Yeah, and it's going to be one of their global vehicles, and so that's going to sell in the millions and, in America and Southeast Asia, things like that. Is it a better vehicle than the Model 3? I haven't driven it yet, but okay. you know, sitting inside of it, the fit and finish was great. And the other thing about the Seagull is that BYD was talking about before the end of this year, also utilizing sodium ion batteries in the Seagull, which could bring the price down even further. And so if we're looking at a $10,000 jet electric vehicle, then BYD's going to, they're going to sell as many as they can make. And other like the Tesla and other foreign car manufacturers, they can't compete at that price point. Uh, They can't. I I say this and I've gotten pushback for it, but Tesla or BYD is what Tesla wants to be because 
BYD builds their fabs its own silicon. It builds its own batteries. They sell batteries and supply batteries to Tesla. They also sell and supply batteries to Ford in China. And so they're vertically integrated. So they control the out of all the automakers building EVs, they have the most control over their costs. And, and, and I, I know the stock has done really well, but does it trade at the same multiple as Tesla does? Do you know? I oh, no. Know that. Oh, no. But the. Tesla has always Tesla and Elon have always had a reality distortion. Theory. Yeah, yeah. And part of that is Elon's aura for sure. The second part is that Western analysts have been generally too lazy to fly to China to see what was really <laughs> well, going on. To, to the, to, to, during the <laughs> pandemic, they couldn't go. Yeah, but sure. now, and now there's yeah. Now they should be on the ground. And I assume they were all over the auto show. And, and, and so maybe and, they're all updating their models right now. And this is a. a another conversation but if you were part of an american media group you didn't have to be american you could be from hong kong working at bloomberg or mm-hmm. you're, you're going to have difficulties or your or wall street journal reporter that wanted to go cover the shanghai auto show mm-hmm. it was a little bit more difficult for you to get a visa so so there were some challenges with western i won't say western with american media companies getting those visas and then on to the i mean We've been seeing this, I think it started maybe in January timeframe or so, these, like these round of price cuts through the industry. Are we seeing the sort of the classic sort of evolution of a Chinese industry as it matures, where you really end up with fighting margins, compressing prices, dropping, and eventually you see a shakeout? But because, you know, there, there's no country, I don't think, where the price wars can be as brutal as in China. So competition in China, and you know this well, is... across sectors yes there are so many brands and the factor that makes the china market different are the soes because the soes will always go lower because they're subs they have subsidies right yes and their their sole purpose i won't say sole purpose but their one of their primary purposes is to keep people employed right and not actually sell vehicles at a profit and so there's always that part of it and every soe has an ev brand Okay. Uh, will those EV brands make it to international markets? Likely not. But there is going to be a shakeout. There's a lot of weakness in um, these companies, and there's just not a lot of capital that you know from private enterprises that want to invest further into the EV space because it's pretty low margin right now. There's probably going to be six or seven or eight brands that do pretty well long term, and they're also going to probably make an impact in Europe, BYD obviously being one of them. And then I would say Zeker, which is a Geely brand. Mm-hmm. They also launched the Zeker X in at Shanghai Auto, and that's 190,000 RMB. And it's about the size like a Volkswagen Golf. Geely owns Volks, be... owns, they own Volvo. Yep, yep. And so they own Volvo, they own Polestar, they own Lotus. And so you, what... There's going to be a lot of wolf and sheep's clothing that have European branding, but with Chinese characteristics right, 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 that right. are going to be entering, that have either already entered Europe or will be entering Europe this year or next year. So that was one of, one of my questions for you, was how quickly will do you think these the PRC EV manufacturers will gain shares overseas and in which markets? And related, which markets will probably be the most welcoming? It sounds like you think Europe will, there'll be some traction in Europe, but also... 
are, does the charging infrastructure exist for the surge in new EVs in these markets, or are the, are the Chinese also going to be building out the charging networks? So in Europe, it, it's a little bit weird because the European Union has declared that 2035, they will stop the sale of ICE and diesel-fueled engine vehicles. Now, the German government has pushed for a carve-out for clean e-fuels, and so you can still... Right. They'll still be able to sell engines or petrol engine vehicles after 2035, but very, very few and far between. The UK, even more aggressive by 2030. And so if you look at the lineup of products that are supposed to be launched by foreign legacy, whether it's a French automotive company, a German automotive company, or an Italian automotive company, there's just not a lot of product in the mass market segments currently in Europe. And guess who plays really well and dominates in the mass market price segment? And we're probably talking sub 40, 45,000 euro. That's where China EV Inc. lives. And these little, so, and these smaller cars too, right? Most of the world is not like America and SUV addicted. Right, exactly. And they're smaller battery packs, 40, 60, 60, 60, 65 kilowatt hour battery packs that maybe go 250 miles, which which is fun for, for most driving. I think United States is definitely a different situation because of how much hauling we do. And you, you recently yeah. bought a big SUV because you like <laughs> the guilty. room and space. <laughs> but so there's legitimate differences between use cases between Europe and the United States. But because the walls are closing in on both sides in Europe because of this 2035 date, I think what we'll see is a lot of Chinese exports. And I had, there was a Reuters article that I, I was just quoted in this morning that I said the European market will be a pressure release valve for a lot of China EV Inc. Because many of those startups will likely see less competition in Europe than right. they do in so, China. So it's the classic overcapacity release valve where they're, they're having a hard time competing in China. They're making too much and then they can effectively push them out to these other markets. And the crazy thing is, Bill, is that I had the pleasure of heading down to BYD in Shenzhen right before I left to come back here. And I test drove about four or five different Vs or plug-in hybrids from them. And every single one of them were high quality, would be competitive in the United States right. at the $25,000, at the $35,000 price point. They're in 52 markets currently. And in Thailand, they're the number one EV maker in Thailand and in it, Israel, they're the number one EV maker so, or EV product or EV brand. And so it, their product resonates. And guess what? If you're trying to EV Inc., you're going to see BYD in almost every market you enter, which is probably not what you're, you're hoping for. Now, and they're obviously well capitalized and they, they just have that massive scale now. And let me point to one thing that I think is really important. In 2022, every other brand, every other OEM, had problems with supply chain, with COVID, with chips. Who were the machines that built hundreds of thousands? So Tesla with, I think, half a million, almost half a million units in China, and BYD with over a million, million two or something like that. Uh, Tesla and BYD, right. they were machines. So they have this operational efficiency that even the GMs and the legacy, the Volkswagens still have problems building these EVs. And so... That's another reason why 
BYD is just crushing it because they can build as many as they sell. Whereas there are challenges from uh, from manufacturing for a lot of these other automakers. And so that's so when it comes to Europe, and I think especially say Germany, I wonder if the we aren't heading into a kind of a backlash towards some of the PRC EV makers just because on the one hand that the German car makers have such a reliance on China and now they're running into problems, and two as you're talking about we may be on the cusp of a significant, I think it's already happening, but it may be accelerating a real surge of PRC exports into the EU market and maybe Germany, where they're actually undercutting a lot of the existing German car manufacturers. And it, it seems like that's the kind of mix that could lead, the German car lobby is pretty powerful, and it just seems like that's the kind of mix that could lead to a bit of a backlash. Um, and re- sorry, and related to that, and this is it's a related question, which is, there have been reports, and I think you can say if they're actually accurate, but there have been reports that there have been occasions where uh, notices have gone out that Tesla vehicles were banned from certain areas in China, say where around where Xi Jinping was making an inspection tour or around sensitive sites like military sites because of national concern, security concerns that potentially the Tesla vehicles, their connected vehicles, they could be um, basically sending back, you know, record video or audio or whatever, or t- so like, like other kinds of data that would threaten PRC national security. Isn't that argument possibly something that will be used by other lobbying groups or governments that don't want to see Chinese EVs in their countries? Then they can point to that and say, well, why is your BYD different than a Tesla? You're absolutely correct on that on that last statement, Bill. The the cameras and the sensors and the mapping, that's not a Tesla problem. That's a smart connected EV problem. Right. And so they used Tesla as the example in China because they were the volume seller at that time. And they wanted to make an example and point out the American company. So yeah. I think that's an important distinction. But yeah, all, again, all of the above. Carlos Tavares, who's the, the CEO of Stellantis, he's already cried about... Uh, some protectionism. So Stellantis is pulling out, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So he can talk. To, he's speaking freely, or he's freely speaking openly, or, or both. So this is the conundrum, and this is the CEOs talking out of both sides of the mouths, or the ones that are speaking openly and freely now. Anyways, Carlos said it's much more difficult to do business in China, and that's fair. That's a fair statement. But before that, thirty-five years, you seem to be doing fine. And he has shareholders that he needs to explain their strategies to. But he doesn't acknowledge that, you know what, the competition got a lot better. Right. And our products didn't. And so he doesn't point that out. So I think to be fair and balanced, uh, we should acknowledge that China EV Inc. just really, really caught up really quickly. No, and, and there was there, there were government programs, government subsidies, you know, made in China the 2025, the Chinese EV makers got a lot of government support, but we all knew that was coming. And especially the foreign automobile, they all knew it was happening years ago. Yeah. And again, so these programs started in 2009. Right. And electric vehicle subsidies, hydrogen fuel cell subsidies, and then R&D for for battery cell R&D subsidies came into place. And CATL was nothing five, six, seven years ago, but there was about a three or four year program where there was a white list of battery cell manufacturers that if you wanted to get the Chinese subsidy, you needed to buy from one of these 17 suppliers. 
just happened to be just happened right. to be coincidentally right? only prc yeah. battery suppliers just happened to be but guess what they saw the writing on the wall or the chinese government saw the writing on the wall and said we're going to start exporting so we need to get rid of this list and this is one of the reasons byd and catl last year owned 50 percent of the market share for lfp batteries and for the foreseeable future europe in the United States, those legacies, they're going to need Chinese batteries to build sub 50,000 US dollars, sub 45,000 right. euro EVs. And I'm saying through 2030, probably, because to get those mines, the lithium mines or whatever they're trying to put in Europe and the United States, that's going to take several years to get enough volume to make a difference and then refining capacity. Because not only does China own about 40% of the mining rights for lithium, they have about 70% of the capacity for refining it. And so even if there were mines in the United States that sourced enough lithium to supply U.S. legacies, it would need to be shipped but to not, China to get refined. Not not so. dissimilar from rare earths, which right aren't rare, but it's the processing that's the challenge in China. Right. There. So on that point about the batteries, right, there's can you talk about the deal that Ford cut to basically license CTL technology? And because it, it has, it, it sounds from a corporate perspective, it sounds like a really smart deal. Obviously, it has had some real political, it's caused a bit of a political furor. Right. So currently, there are, there's Goshen, who had made an announcement about a firm investment into Michigan. So they're investing their own R&B into building battery components factory. And, and I think components equals battery cell factory. Mm -hmm. And you probably remember because your next door neighbors with Virginia, Yunkin had said they don't want Chinese money investing in Virginia. So I, my, the, what I'd heard was the rumor was that Yunkin wanted a bigger investment from Goshen <laughs> and he didn't get it. And so he tried to kill two birds with one stone by saying, yes, we're not taking Chinese money. And Gru Whitner gladly took it because that means jobs for the United States. And so what you're referring to with Ford is also a Tesla deal where Ford and Tesla are going to build a battery cell factories in, so Ford's going to build it in Michigan. And Tesla, I'm not sure if they've announced where they're going to be building, but they basically are going to license the IP from CATL. So there are no CATL employees that build battery cells in the United States for, on Ford's behalf. And so the lesson to me is that if you want American jobs, don't use R&B to create them. It's better to go around the Inflation Reduction Act than to to try to get American jobs using Chinese capital. And so the way that the, the sort of the licensing of the CETL technology, you're saying that's the way to get around, to go around the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, so I've been hearing that Manchin is going to be pushing back on that as well. But currently, to my understanding, the Goshen deal will go through CFIUS, but the Ford and the Tesla deal with CETL will not. Because okay. Because not and any money being invested in the U.S. from CIT. And I guess the question, again, I just, I looked at the sort of thinking about that licensing the CATL technology. I don't understand, is the national security risk that people talk about the fact that these firms will be relying on Chinese battery technology? It's not like they're going to be like slipping in 
secret code <laughs> or like chips to transmit back in the technology the licensing of the batteries are. I'm just I'm just curious like why it's such a seen as such a now security problem. It seems like a pretty clever solution to a problem. The problem being that the US doesn't make these things in any kind of the volume that these car companies needed for. Right. I think the real risk, Bill, is that we would get addicted to Chinese battery cells and the pricing that come with it right. and never want to move to domestic because CATL, BYD, Goshen, they'll always go lower. We, the U.S. And, and again, I, and I do understand that that there are certainly are is pushback because they're able to price that way because of all the subsidies, because of the... You know, and so, of course, now the U.S. is pursuing it. it we're a little bit late. Right, mm-hmm. we're in like made in USA 2050 at this point. Right? It's a little, it, but no, but we are like we. I think the National Security Advisor Sullivan's recent speech, which was really a sort of this a real shift in looking at sort of economic policy, and in many ways, it's uh, they didn't say it, but it's like because China's actually looks like they've been successful with some of the stuff, right? And I think this is why like the car industry is certainly one of those areas, right? I have a European friend that told me you cannot call the EU a socialist region anymore because of the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> but to me, as as the homer, if I'm putting my homer Detroit in mm-hmm. U.S. hat on, uh, it's better late than never. Right. Because I know, and I think you know, that if we let them, they'll flood the market uh, the, with EVs, with batteries. And Americans love... Uh, made in America. They love that story. They love that theme. It's the second most important thing to them. The first being price. And so if there's a quality product that a Chinese manufacturer uh, is able to provide to an American consumer, you better believe that American consumer will buy it. And there there needs to be some sort of protectionism or the U.S. legacies don't stand a chance. Well, what, I mean, we saw this with Japan in the early 80s, right, where ultimately the U.S., cut a deal with the Japanese and forced the Japanese, effectively forced the Japanese to set up factories in the U.S. Yeah. And, and we, like my wife has a BMW that was made in South Carolina. And so you know, are we, are, should we expect to see like BYD try and do a manufacturing facility in the U.S. or is that just not politically possible? I don't think there's any doubt that China EV Inc. will build and set up a shop in Europe. In, in, I won't say the United States, I'll say North America. Okay. Because we have that free trade. If you think of it from a strategic level, if we believe that Tesla is going to eventually build a cheaper Model 2 in Mexico City for North America, for Latin America, for South America, there's going to be a lot of suppliers in and around that area already. And so if I was a BYD or a uh, an Xpeng, I would consider opening in Mexico City right. because there's already their suppliers. It's free trade with the United States. Right. The logistic and, networks are already set up. And and the politics might not be as nuclear as if they opened up shop in the United States. But I will say this, Bill. If BYD approached the governor of Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina and said, I'm going to write you a $5 billion check, and I'm going to hire a bunch of South Carolina, South Carolinians or Alabamans and Mississippians. You don't think that governor would take that money? Of course he would. But again, this is one of those things. We're moving towards an election year. And I think China Bash is kind of in vogue on both sides of the, of the aisle. But 
we have to separate that out with uh, the United States, you and I, we work hard for our money and I want the best product regardless of where it's built. Now, and it's cars are getting a lot more expensive in the U.S. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so do I think that the United States can catch up or the U.S. legacies? I do. I do. But I think it's where the Europe might be the odd man out because here's a question I've posed to many German auto executives. I mean, I've asked them, okay, name me five globally relevant Chinese technology companies. No problem. We can do that, right? U.S., name me five globally relevant U.S. technology companies. Okay, no problem. We can do that. Now name me five European globally right. relevant technology companies. And so that software, that capability that Europe doesn't have, I think it's going to create this buy situation. And you either got to buy it in China from Chinese technology companies. And then when you go outside China, there's a rest of the world strategy. And this is going to really create a lot of anxiety and headaches and sleepless nights for the European leadership of these automotive companies. And what about the Japanese and Korean auto firm? The Japanese market is still, even after all these years, right? U.S. cars have very low share in Japan and Korea, right? Mm -hmm. And they're fairly protected markets. Are the Chinese EVs going to have much chance of breaking into those markets? So I think so, because again, they can produce these vehicles at such a cost that the Japanese, you know, Toyota doesn't want to play in the 10,000 US dollar price range, uh, 13, 14 US thousand dollar price range. In Japan, they do that in Southeast Asia, don't they? Are they in other markets? They do, but their global strategy on product planning has really been slow, just like in China. And BYD, there's a company called Netta. There's a couple other companies, uh, Chinese EV companies that are have started to export into to Thailand. BYD just announced that they're going to be building a mm-hmm. factory in Vietnam as well now. And so they have a, a kit factory in India, BYD does. And so these companies are already there. And what the Thailand and the Vietnams and the India. So I'll give you a good example. India became the fourth largest passenger vehicle market in the world last year uh, behind United, uh, China, United States, Japan, and Germany or something like that, or, or surpassed Germany. And I think they're on uh, almost 2 million units. But Modi, he knows he can't stay in power if it's polluted like it is in those Indian cities. And so in order to get rid of that pollution, he's going to have to get clean energy vehicles. Most of them are going to be mopeds, but as the per capita income increases, people are going to want to buy cheaper passenger vehicles, right? And so if Modi's to stay in power, he's going to really have to get rid of that pollution really quickly. And how do you do that? You do that through electric mopeds and electric passenger vehicles and commercial vehicles. And the only game in town at that price point is still going to be China EV Inc. It's really fascinating because I I would not be surprised if we start seeing many more governments pushing out subsidy programs. Um, Because, but I also think, I just think that the I have no inside knowledge, but I'm, I will be shocked if we don't start seeing like a more of a concerted campaign in some of these markets from various lobbyist politicians around the national security implications of these connected cars. I think, yes. I think that's going to be the, what, what, what some people see as the Trump card around why, why you can't. And, and again, I think it's like we can, that's a much longer discussion because from a sort of a purely a actual product and price perspective, 
it sounds like this tsunami is coming that most markets and most car manufacturers just can't compete with. So your point is valid because right now Chinese exports into Europe and the or Europe are still fairly small, but BYD alone said they want to ship 800,000 vehicles to foreign markets this year. The United States last year bought a total of 800,000 EVs. So that gives you the, sense of the, the scale, the context, right? And so, yeah, scale. So the EU and the United States have different takes on private data security, data privacy, and where it needs to right. reside and all that stuff. This is their opportunity to get in front of it before this, like you said, tsunami arrives, right? But remember, G is, a, is an SAIC brand, but with British heritage. And so they're already... And the other thing that's really interesting, Bill, is that Volkswagen announced that they're going to be shipping Chinese-made Volkswagens into Europe. And Ford has announced that they're going to be shipping Chinese-made Lincoln Aviators into the United States. And so in these instances, Bill, the calls are coming from inside the house. Right. No, it's very comp- it's it's fascinating. Oh, so yeah, I, and to me the EV and we haven't even talked about autonomous vehicles cuz that's the real technical and data intensive sector that is going to play a huge role in the next 15 18 years because there's a number of Chinese autonomous vehicle startups. Are they pretty that- good now? Man, I got into the Baidu and level four with Duncan, of course. And yeah, yeah, there was no no driver. That, and so I've done that in San Francisco and I've done that in China now. I'm probably one of, of the few people that have. This is uh, like the Baidu taxi? Yeah, in Yijuan. So it's South Beijing and okay. they have this um, this like zone where they're testing vehicles. And so I was lucky during my trip. My three-week trip, I got into four robo-taxis in China, just China. So there's four of them. But we don't get any kind of coverage on these four. We only talk about Waymo. We only talk about Cruise, Motional to a lesser extent, and, and or certain Western companies. But this is going to be a global showdown. And what China AV Inc. and, Ch- and U.S. AV Inc. are going to do is likely going to compete for Europe, compete for Southeast Asia, compete for the Middle East from the standpoint of carving out where their autonomous vehicles are going to be launched and pilots are going to be. It's interesting. And I wonder if it'll be if if the country already has the Huawei telecom network, then the Chinese AVs will be welcome. And the ones that have basically pushed out Huawei, it'll be this big bifurcation. And the ones that don't allow Huawei probably won't allow the China AVs. I don't think there's any doubt that there's going to be some sort of bifurcation. I'll give you a quick example, Bill. GM acquired Cruise, I want to say about seven years ago or six years ago, for over a billion dollars. And you would think that for that type of investment, they'd make Cruise their autonomous vehicle arm globally. But last year, they invested, I want to say, 400 million US dollars in a Chinese autonomous vehicle company called Shoot Momenta. And so if they thought that they could use cruise in China. Why would they invest four hundred million dollars in the Chinese right. autonomous vehicle company? They're smart. So, they get it right. They are, and so that way you play. You can play both market. You can play sort of the bifurcation of the global market. 
Yeah, and we'll let the politicians decide. We got our, we have our hedge, right? right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna be able to. uh, That's pretty smart, actually. Exactly, and so I think that as so the one thing that's the the current wild card is that. ADAS or advanced driving assist systems, level two, level three, where it's like that smart cruise control or where you can take your hands off the wheels for a little bit as long as you're looking at. Or, the, or the if front. you're a Tesla driver, think you could watch a movie while you're driving. And, uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. yeah. What? But that only Don't happens. Don't do that in at US. home, please. That only happens in the US. That doesn't happen in China. As, but I think that's going to really push that whole data. Thing, right because now yeah. vehicles come with radar they come with sensors yeah. to your point no, about the smart ev so it's it's coming faster than most governments think and so they really probably in the next 18 months really need to get in front of regulatory or regulations and how they want to deal with that stuff so that would require a thoughtful methodical government regulation and political environment which i'm not maybe that'll happen in the eu i don't know i'm not super optimistic that will be there in the US, but I could be wrong. So a couple last, a couple final questions. I know you're busy, I'll let you go, but I, I like watching the sort of the car review videos on YouTube. I'm a big fan of Doug DeMuro who has like, I don't know, five and a half million subscribers or something. And so a, a few weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago, BYD, which obviously has a very smart marketing department, they're not for sale in the US, but they got a BYD Han vehicle to California and he was one of the people they offered it to to review a test drive. And he, he test drives everything, and he's pretty quirky, pretty funny, can be pretty critical. And the takeaway, like, he, he the car had some quirks, but I think from BY, we, BYD's perspective, they must have been ecstatic with this review because it was basically like, wow, this is a really good car. There's a lot of potential here. Maybe we're going to see a lot more Chinese cars because they actually can make really good cars, <laughs> which, again, sort of this... Eureka, not a Eureka mode, but like a real, it was really revelatory because it's like the old days where the assumption was the Korean cars were crappy, the Japanese cars were crappy way back in the day. And they were for a while. And then all of a sudden they just rolled over the U.S. auto manufacturers. And so I think this review, sort of this wake up call for a lot of people, and especially for him, that actually the Chinese, and of course people in China know this, like people like you know this, but this was a much sort of broader market messaging. And kudos to BYD for really targeting the right people to review their mm-hmm. car. And Sandy Monroe is also a very, he's long China EVs as well. And Sandy Monroe is famous for breaking down or deconstructing vehicles and then selling that information for creating efficiencies and manufacturing to the OEMs so they can save money. He's old school. He's here in Michigan and he's very well known in the industry. He's very very positive on Chinese EVs as well. So I think, uh, again, people are starting to wake up that these are competitive products, competitively priced, and it'll take time because there are two emotional buys in a person's life, a house and a car. And you, although an iPhone might cost you $1,200, if you lose it, you'll go to just go buy another one. It takes hours of research before you actually go buy a car. And so the Chinese EV manufacturers know this, and they'll be patient when it comes to creating a brand, creating that awareness, determining what the positioning is in each of these markets, U.S. market, German markets, Italian market. And again, most won't be successful, but there will be five, six, seven brands, depending on the market, that will be. 
And I think the Chinese EV manufacturers, generally speaking, have nothing but patience because uh, of the the flexibility they're allowed by being successful in the Chinese market. Where Li Xiang, who's Li Auto's founder, he said by 2025, there should be an 80% take rate. And last year alone, there were 22 million vehicles sold in China. So 80%, if 80% of those by 2025 are 17 plus 18 million thereabouts. So there's more because the market will grow too. Yeah, exactly. So there's plenty of space to, to make money in China alone. So they'll have patience in Europe and Neo has already said that they're going to be entering the market by 2025 BYD. I don't think are going to be waiting much longer than that either. So we'll, we'll start to see them in the U S for sure. Well, I'll just wait and see who does the first Super Bowl ad. Right. No, I'm not joking though. That'll be a real town because that'll be like, they're here. Like this yeah. is the, this is that moment. You know, in, in some ways, if you're, if you're like the car advertising industry in the U S is huge. A lot of media companies, TV networks, they rely on car advertising. They'll welcome the, the Chinese companies coming in the market because they're going to have to spend a huge amount of money building their brands. Yeah. And I should also mention, you probably already know this, is that Zeker will be IPOing in the U.S. later this year, or at least that's what they said. So I think not only will there be Neo, Xpeng, and Li Auto, Zeker should be joining them very soon. Interesting. And they've had a good, some of them did well. They haven't done so well lately. I think the price cuts seem to be hurting the stock prices. Am I correct? Yeah, they are. And some of them are, Xpeng and Neo have had some operational challenges. Yeah. Li Auto has been crushing it in the China market, but they're solely focused on China for now. So I think that kind of shields them a little bit more. Uh, and they have, they've gotten some amazing products as well. So yeah. All right. well, so one last question. So while you're at the auto show, or two questions actually. One, what was your favorite car that you saw? Uh, three questions, sorry. So what was your favorite car? Is the BYD Yangwang, does it look exactly like the Land Rover Defender, at least from the, on the outside? And then three is if money were no object, would you buy a Rolls Royce or would you buy the top of the line red flag Hongqi oh, car? Geez. Which look pretty badass these days, I got to say. So answer to number one, and I'm going to keep the exotics out of it because I'm a car guy right. and I love the exotics because I, if I had a choice, I would just get a, a, an M5. But the car that I really thought looked really good was the BYD Song L. And it was a concept car that will be launching, I think, later this year. I was super curious. It didn't get the, the windows were blacked out, so we didn't get to see the interior. But the Song L was a was what I thought would look really really good. Is um, it a sedan? What is it? Or is it like more of a sports? It's car? like a small crossover, uh, a little bit like an SUV, but not really. So cool. kind of like a, like a little hatchback. And then your second question: Yes, the U nine looks exactly. I'll just say silhouettes. Silhouette, just like the Defender. The and so they had two. Yang Wan had two cars, the U8 and U9. If I'm mixing them up, my apologies. The U8, I believe, is the sports car. Okay. And then the U9 is the SUV. There's about five or six people deep on the SUV, and there's one or two people deep on the sports car. So it looks cool. I mean, it looks like it, a nice car, but it definitely looks inspired from the um, British, now India-owned uh, Land Rover line. Yes, and and you should know because you see it every day, Rob. And I got to see a couple of those disguised mules of the SUV, the Yangwan SUV, while I was in, in BYD headquarters. Last question. 
I love that Hong Chi man. That thing the, looked great. The front end is just mean looking. Yes. And oh man, now the interior is a little cheesy, but it is such a unique car, and it just is really badass. It would be fun to drive so, around Detroit, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. The, the, you would get so many stares. Like this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> So that's one of my one of my goals is to get an import a like an old school, not one of the new home. Although cheese, the old the schools old are school yeah, no, they're uh, they're pretty impressive. Uh, so well, thank cool. you for your time. Any anything else you want to add? Or we've talked about a lot. Yeah, no, maybe maybe we can make this a regular thing because you know that it's going to be changing, changing like yes, there's going to be talking about all this kind of stuff because you no know, Beijing Auto Show is just around the corner, man. You are know, you going? Way, but I'll be there for sure. I'll be there for sure. I plan on. Oh, we have family ties. Do the other auto shows around the world matter anymore? Not so much. Amazing. I think Amazing. Because even in Europe, the, the Chinese brands dominated. And I went to Detroit last year, and it was just okay. Oh, I wasn't that impressed, which wow. is unfortunate. But wow. maybe the IRA will make uh, the Detroit Auto Show. Protectionism, again, baby. So. Industrial policy. <laughs> yeah, man. It's a job program, right? Yeah, learn, job- learn from the PRC. On- well, look, thank you. So, Thule, this has been great. He runs Sino Auto Insights. I'll put some links in. He has a great newsletter, a great podcast. Your, your Twitter spaces is weekly, or what is that? It's weekly. Weekly, yep. okay. So, and, you, can um, find me, you can find me at Sino Auto Insight without an S, uh, right. my Twitter handle. So. And I'll put all this on the show notes. So, thanks again for your time. This is really great, and I've learned a lot about the auto industry. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's catch up soon. Absolutely.